First Samuel chapter eight. Now, First Samuel is in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First Samuel. Couple books in. All right, to the Old Testament. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Justin. First Samuel chapter eight. While you're finding your place there, quick historical context, just so that we kind of have somewhat of an idea of where we are as we dive into this eighth chapter of First Samuel. So the year is roughly 1043 BC. 1043 BC. What does that mean? This is about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Thousand years before Jesus is born, there's a guy named Samuel. He's kind of the main character of our Bible study today. Now, at this time, Israel was not ruled by any one king. Israel was ruled by judges. So, you you know some of the kings of Israel. King David, King Solomon, King Saul, King Hezekiah. Okay, this was before all of those men. This was the time of the judges. Now, Israel, before they had kings, they had what the Bible calls judges. Now, we think in our westernized mindset of a judge being someone who wears a black robe, holds a gavel, okay, lives in a courtroom, makes those decisions. Okay, that's not the biblical judge. A judge in Bible times was basically someone that God appointed for a specific time and purpose to lead the nation of Israel. So they had leadership, they had oversight over the nation of Israel. Many uh, of the time they would sit at the city gates and they would help make decisions for their town or for their city. Samuel, our character here, he is a judge. Someone that the Lord has appointed for a specific time and purpose to give oversight and leadership to the nation of Israel. Because God was their king. Okay, not a man, but God was their king. He was ruling over the nation. But he appointed leaders to help give some oversight. And Samuel is one of those guys. Samuel's a judge, but he's also a prophet. So he shares prophetic words from God from time to time. Samuel is a righteous man, the Bible says. And so this is the main character of our story. Before we start reading, how about I just pray and we just commit our Bible study to the Lord first. God, before we dive in, we just ask now that you would help us uh, as we study your word, Lord, that you would reveal to us uh, what you want us to learn from this study. I pray for those who have come into service tonight. Maybe they had a busy Monday, a hectic Monday, a bad Monday, a good Monday. Whatever the case might be, Lord, would you just right now remove any distractions And would you help us learn from your spirit tonight by your word? We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says, amen. Okay, so let's read together here. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Everybody there? Let's read starting in verse 1. And we're going to read this full chapter together, but we're going to kind of walk through it. So 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel, okay, this is the judge, the prophet over Israel, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Okay, so the Bible says right here, verse 1, Samuel's old. Now we know from biblical chronology that at this time Samuel's about 60 years old, okay? So if you've ever wondered, like, when are you officially old? 
you know, the Bible says you're old when you're 60. So if you have parents kind of getting up there, they're closing in on that gap. Okay, give them some grace right now. Maybe they're not there yet. But when they hit 60, you can just say, hey, listen, the Bible calls you old. Okay, Samuel was 60. And the Bible says, now it came to pass when Samuel was old. Okay, so give them some time now, you know. But when they hit that number, you can just biblically decree upon them by the power of the Holy Spirit. You are old. So it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Okay, so Samuel's old, but the Bible says he has two sons and he appoints them as judges over Israel. So again, judges, they had some leadership, some oversight over their cities, the town. So he makes his sons judges over Israel. Verse 2, it names the sons for us. So it says the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. So the Bible says that Samuel, he has two sons. He's getting old himself. He says, hey, about time my boys start working. Going to make them judges. You know, they got to start making decisions for our different towns and cities here in Israel. And the Bible says that their names are Joel and Abijah. Now, they have very biblical names. Joel in the Hebrew, his name means the Lord is God. Abijah in the Hebrew, he, his name means the Lord is my father. So they have very biblical names, but they have unbiblical character. It says in verse 3, his sons didn't walk in Samuel's ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Okay, so Samuel's a righteous guy, but he has two sons. He gives them biblical names, but they have very unbiblical character. It says they're, they're judges, leaders at the city gates, and he says they're taking bribes. Okay, they're perverting justice. They're taking advantage of people. So Israel's not in great hands. And it says in verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, look, you are old. You are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. I love just how direct these elders are. They basically come up to Samuel and they're like, look, you're old and your sons are bad. Okay, you're old, your sons are bad. And it says there in verse 5, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. All right, so you're understanding where we are here. Samuel's two boys, they're judges over the nation of Israel. Samuel's kind of passing the baton of leadership to his boys, but they're bad guys. They're making bad decisions, taking advantage of people. The elders of the city, they come to Samuel and they're like, listen, you're old, you're getting up in age, and your sons, they're, they're, they're misbehaving, they're taking advantage of people, and they ask them a request. They ask Samuel a request, listen, it's time that you give us a king. You know, we want a king, and it says we want a king like everybody else. Everyone else around us, every, all the nations around us, they have a king except us. And, and, and if you're getting old and your sons, they're not, they don't look too promising, then, then we officially want a king, the Bible says. That's what they ask them. So continue with me, verse 6. It says, But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me 
that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which, which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. So Samuel gets this request from the elders. Hey, give us a king. We're done with you. We're done with your sons. We want a king. And the Bible says that this displeased Samuel. But he took it to the Lord, and the Lord basically assures him, listen, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me, and they've been rejecting me for a long time. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, remember that they were slaves in Egypt? The Bible says that the Israelite people, they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God does a miraculous thing. He parts the Red Sea. He frees the Hebrew slaves, gives them this promised land. But God says, listen, They're not forsaking you, Samuel. They're not rejecting you, but they're rejecting me, and they've been doing this for a while now. This is kind of a side note here, but I just want to speak to the room for a moment on the topic of rejection. I want you to notice here that Samuel experiences feelings of rejection in this moment. And it says here, Samuel, it doesn't say that Samuel goes to the Lord and says, Lord, I feel rejected, but it's implied here because in verse 7, The Lord says to Samuel, listen, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me. So Samuel, he goes to the Lord, he's upset, he's displeased, and I want you to just notice here that God reassures him, listen, they're not rejecting you, you, Samuel, they're they're rejecting me. And I just want to speak to you for a moment on that, and this is kind of a side note here, not the main theme of our study, but if you have ever felt rejected. Maybe you felt rejected by a parent. You felt rejected by a dad. Didn't really have a father in the home. Wasn't the spiritual leader. Left and abandoned the the home. Uh, Maybe it was a mom. Maybe it was, you know, a relationship. Felt abandoned, felt rejected. Maybe it wasn't a single person, but it was more a group of people. You went to school, didn't really fit in. Uh, felt like you weren't accepted by people at school. Maybe it's at work. Listen, you get the job done. Uh, you know what the job requires of you, but just the atmosphere, the room, you, just, you don't fit in. You feel like they don't really accept you. Listen, take it to the Lord. Samuel, he feels rejected by the people. He's the judge over the nation of Israel. He's the prophet. And the people are like, listen, Samuel, you're old. You no longer can rule over us. Your sons, they're not too promising. We're done with you. We want a king. And Samuel, he takes it to heart. He takes it personally. And he goes to the Lord with it. And God reassures him, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And I don't really have much to say on this to really um, pour into that if, that really, if this kind of is speaking to you at the moment. Other than to say, listen, if you ever have feelings of rejection, two things for you. Take it to the Lord. Immediately, if you feel discouraged because you don't fit in, because people don't accept you, you felt rejected or abandoned by a family member, go to the Lord. The Bible says that God is a father to the fatherless. So go to the Lord if you ever feel like you've been rejected. But then number two, you can also know that within those feelings of rejection, that Jesus Christ, when he was here on earth, can sympathize with those feelings of rejection. Isaiah the prophet, he would say in Isaiah 53, 3, prophesying about Jesus, he says, 
He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and they held him in low esteem. So the beautiful thing about our relationship with Jesus Christ is that he can sympathize and empathize with what we're going through. We don't serve a God who is you know, far off in the sky, who can't empathize with our weaknesses, empathize with our emotions. Okay, we serve a God in Jesus Christ who can sympathize and empathize with us because the Bible says that Jesus, while he was here on earth, he was abandoned. His disciples left him. Okay, he was rejected. He was despised. So he can sympathize and empathize with us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says, that we don't serve a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but we serve a high priest who can empathize with us because he was tempted just as we are in every way. Yet he was without sin, the Bible says. But yet he can still empathize with our emotions, with our rejection, with our feelings of we don't fit in. So go to the Lord with those feelings And then also remember that Jesus can empathize with you. And that should actually encourage you and compel you to go to Jesus with your feelings because you can always relate to someone more when they've been what you've, when they've been through what you've been through, right? So you trust someone, you can talk to someone about these feelings because they understand you. Hey, this person understands me. They've been there. They've been through this. Hey, that's the Lord. You feel abandoned, rejected, not accepted, don't fit in. Hey, go to the Lord. The Lord can sympathize. He can empathize with that. Jesus understands that. And so, just wanted to point that out as I was reading. Samuel, he, he feels rejected, but God assures him, listen, Samuel, the people, they're not rejecting you, but really they're rejecting me. And then in verse 9, God tells them, now, therefore, heed their voice. He basically says, listen, if they want a king, they want a king. Okay, give it to him. He says, however, verse 9, however, you shall solemnly forewarn them. You shall forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. So this is what happens, verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said in verse 11, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. So he's warning the people, okay, you want a king? All right, listen, I got to first warn you, verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. He will also appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equip equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, Okay, I don't, I don't know what that is. He will take your daughters to be perfumers. I don't know if, you know, as the king walks by, just has a couple of perfume girls, a couple of spritzes, as the king walks by. You know, that would kind of, kind of be nice. You know, in the morning, you're getting ready, guys. You got a line of ladies there with your favorite cologne, whatever, a couple of spritzes as you walk by, and just breathe it in. All right, I don't, this is just, pray for me, Okay. Okay, verse 12. So he's warning them here. He says, this is what's going to happen. Verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. He'll take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, your donkeys. He's going to put them to his work. 
He'll take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. And then verse 18, it says, And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, and the Lord will not hear you. And then verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, so after he gives them all this warning, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but we will have a king over us that we also might be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So, quick synopsis of what we just read. Samuel, he's discouraged, he's displeased, he goes to God, God, they want a, they want a king. And he's like, listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. If they want a king, give them a king. Give them a king. But listen, you've got to warn them up front. I want you to warn them, if they get a king, this is what's going to happen. So God tells Samuel, Samuel's like, okay, that's a good idea. He goes back to the people, to the elders who wanted a king, and he explains, listen, okay, God's willing to give you a king, but he tells me to tell you how the king will act if you actually get a king. So just up front, so you're not surprised, if you get a king, he's going to make some of your sons a part of his military. You still want a king? They're like, yeah, we still want a king. Like, okay, if, if you get a king, he's going to make some of, your, some of your sons a part of the military. He's going to make some of them mechanics. They're going to work on your chariots. You still want a king? They're like, we still want a king. He says, listen, do you want a king? Okay, he's going to make some of your sons mow his lawn, reap his harvest, serve you, serve him. Do okay, you still want a king? They're like, we, Samuel, yes. Like, we still want a king. He's like, okay, he's going to make some of your daughters perfumers and some of them cooks and some of them bakers. Okay, you still want a king? Because he's going to take all your daughters away from you. They're like, Samuel, we still want a king. He's like, okay, listen, you still want a king, but this is what you're going to do. He's going to take some of your daughters. They're going to make all, their, all the meals for the king. You know, he's going to take your, your sons, your daughters. He's going to take your property. Samuel says he's going to take your property. He's going to take a tenth of all you have. He's going to give it to all of his servants. He's going to make you even some of his servants. You're going to have to work for this king. You still want a king? And they're like, Samuel, my goodness, yes. We still want a king. And it says, nevertheless, they refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. And Samuel says, okay, listen, just so that you know, I went through all of that list with you so that you're forewarned. And when you regret this, okay, not if, he says, when you regret this, you're actually going to cry out to God and the Lord's not going to hear you. And they say, yeah, okay, understood. And they still say, we want a king. We want a king. Now, why did Israel beg for a king? Why did Israel want a king so badly? Even after Samuel warns them, this is what the king is going to do. And when you regret it, you'll cry out to God and God won't respond. And they say, we still want a king. Two reasons it's found in 1 Samuel 19 and 20 in, in eight. Chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, basically, they wanted to be like all the other nations. Okay, verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, We still want a king over us, so that, verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. And then secondly, they feared their enemies and they wanted someone to fight for them. That's what he also says in verse 20. That we also may look like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. I find this so interesting here. The Israelite people, even though they were warned about all of this, 
They still wanted a king, primarily the number one reason, so that we can look like everybody else. We want a king, all the other nations have a king. And we would just want, we basically we want to look like everybody else. They, they complain, they cry to Samuel, listen, everyone's got a king. Everyone's got a, they got that, you, you ever played that game when you were younger? You have siblings? Listen, they got this, or all this, all the, you know, all my friends, they have a cell phone. You know, why can't I get a cell phone? You cry and you complain to your parents. This was the people of Israel. Everyone's got a king. Everyone else has a king. We want a king because we want to look like everyone else. They wanted so badly to look like everyone else, even though the nations that they wished to emulate were idol worshipers. Guys, this is so descriptive of us. How many times do we set God aside because we just want to look like everybody else? How often do we compromise because we just want to look like everybody else? Even though the people that we wish we were like don't follow God at all. I know of so many stories where students grow up in the church and you know, maybe this, is, maybe this is descriptive of you. Grow up in the church, grew up going to church, reading your Bible, that was kind of what you did. And you grew up, you were in the high school youth group, loved the Lord, went off to college. And the environment that you were surrounded by was so compelling because you just wanted to look like everybody else. And it's so natural for us, it's our human tendency. We don't want to stand out, we want to fit in but what happens is we so badly want to look like everyone else that we compromise, we set God aside, we neglect the Lord and our spiritual health because we just want to look like everyone else. And we start to do what everyone else is doing, talk like everyone else talks. Guys, this was the people of Israel. They set God aside. Listen, we, 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 yes, God's our king, but we want a physical king. We want an earthly king so that we can have someone who can go out and fight for us. But predominantly, the main, number one reason, we just want to look like everyone else. We just want to fit in. And so they set God aside. And so maybe you're still in school and you're still in that phase of college and maybe after the summer's done, you're going back to school. Just, just to challenge you, to encourage you, and really because I care about you, listen, trying to look like everyone else is so overrated. And it always goes better for us when we embrace the loneliness and walk with God than trying to fit in and live without Him. There's never been a story where I've heard someone walking in the faith go off to school, attempt to fit in, make decisions, come back and say, yeah, because I attempted to fit in and look like everyone else, my life is awesome. And everything, you know, coming out of school, you know, all the decisions I made, you know, I set God aside for the moment, tried to fit in, did all the stuff, and my life's, it's much better than when I went in. Mostly, that's never the case. Because people go in, set God aside, attempt to fit in, so they do all the cool stuff, they try to fit in, they want to look like everyone else, they come out of school thinking, you know, i got to get right with God, I made so many stupid decisions. 
Guys, this was the nation of Israel. They want to look like everybody else. Maybe you're not in school, but you're in your career. And listen, that mindset still follows you. Even when you're in your career, maybe you work in a secular work environment and the people talk a certain way, they do things after work, and, and you want to fit in because you, like, you want to work your way up the ladder. You don't want to offend people. You don't want to feel like you're isolated. And so you compromise on things you know you shouldn't be doing, you know you shouldn't be going to places, but you want to fit in with other people around the workplace. And so you compromise on stuff. And guys, compromising on biblical morals and biblical standards to fit in, it never goes well. The people of Israel find that out, and they just want to fit in. Nevertheless, it's what the people wanted, and so God gave it to them. And so he would actually give them a man named Saul, very first king of Israel. This was his name. His name was Saul. In the Hebrew, it is Shaul, and the Hebrew literally means one who has been begged for. Pretty fitting, right? So his name is Shaul. He's the first king of Israel, one who's been begged for. The Bible says that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, there were 12 tribes in the land of Israel. Saul of the tribe of Benjamin. The Bible says that he was a very handsome man, one of the most handsome men in all of the land. Okay? The Bible says that he was head and shoulders above every other man. So tall, handsome. Okay, I'm just picturing Chris Hemsworth, Thor. Okay? It's kind of my, it's Man Crush Monday. So, you know, Chris Hemsworth in the land of Israel, he's coming along, he's carrying his hammer. And, this, and the, guy, the Bible says that the people see and they're like, hey, this, this guy looks like a king. What a, what a babe, what a dude. Like they, so they promote him, they, they bring him in front of the people and God actually says, this is, this is the guy. You want him, you can have him. So Saul, he's the next king of Israel. But the people of Israel quickly find out that Saul... He didn't live up to their expectations. And he fulfilled everything that Samuel prophesied to them. He's going to take your sons, make them a part of the military, make them mechanics, work on his chariots, mow his lawn. Going to take your daughters. They're going to be perfumers and bakers and cookers and all this stuff. He's going to take your property. He's going to steal all you have. He's going to make you some of his All this stuff happens. The people cry out to the Lord. All of this stuff But here at at the time, Saul's propped up. He looks like a king. He looks like the role. And the Bible says that they, they start to exalt him and they say, long live the king. So God actually gives them what they want, but Saul would prove to be a flawed king. Now I find this super interesting. Have you ever considered that God will allow you to have that which is not best for you? God will allow you to have that which is not best for you. In other words, God will sometimes give you that which isn't best for you. Now you might think, why would God do that? That is so cruel. God's a good father. Why would he give me that which wasn't best for me? I don't believe that God would do that. He does. And he did it right here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. What was best for them? God. But after they asked God for a king... What did God give them? He gave them an earthly king. So God actually allowed them to have that which wasn't best for them. Now, why does God do that? Why would God do that? Why would God ever give us 
something that wasn't best for us? Or why would God allow us to have something or to have things that aren't good for us? The only reason that God... God gives to us for a number of reasons. The first reason, you know, God gives to us because He's a good dad. He loves to bless His kids. He wants us to be able to enjoy His blessings, give God glory. Certainly, that's why God gives to us. But there's another reason that God actually gives to us, specifically when God allows us to have things that aren't best for us. And the only reason that God gives to us that which is not best for us is because He wants us to realize that that which we thought we needed isn't what was really what we needed. God wants us to realize that that which we thought would fulfill us really only fails us, so that we recognize that our true need is Him. This is what the Lord does. From time to time, and I'll put up on the screen just so you can write this down because it's so important, from time to time, God will actually allow us to have that which we think we need, but don't, so that when we get it, we realize that our true need is Him. Okay, I want you to think of it in in these terms with a quick illustration. So, you know, it's a hot summer, hot summer July, and we have a little back deck, you know, of our home, And that's kind of like our our play area with my two little girls. They're three and one. And so we go out to the back deck, hot summer day. After the the hot sun's been beating on that deck, like you step outside and and your feet are just roasted. You know, like you ever walk on just hot asphalt and it's just so hot, you got to find grass or find like something that's, you know, been shaded for a while to cool off your feet. Okay, so the back porch... Uh, the back deck, it gets hot after the sun's been beating down on it. My one-year-old Blair, she doesn't understand that the deck is hot. She just wants to go outside. Outside, daddy, outside, outside, daddy, daddy, outside. So I open the door, but I pick her up and I hold her because I know that the deck is hot. Okay, she doesn't understand that and she's complaining to me, daddy, put me down, put me down, put me down. And I know better and I say, hot, too hot, hot. You know, that's all I can be, that's all she really understands. She understands hot, so I say hot, too hot. And she says, no, put me down. And she's fussing and she's just getting so rambunctious in my arms. And so listen, (laughs) you asked for it. (laughs) So this is exactly what God does with the people. So I'm holding Blair, she's fussing, she's asking, put me down, this is what I want. I will sometimes... Very, for a brief moment, I will sometimes allow Blair to have what she wants so that she then in turn realizes it wasn't what she really needed. What she really needed was for me to hold her. But it's not until I allow her to have what she wanted where then she actually realizes how harmful it was. She can beg all day in my arms that the ground is too hot. Now, yes, certainly there are things I will never give her because she will kill herself. But for a temporary moment on a hot deck, I will allow her to feel how hot it is so that she realizes that which she thought she wanted wasn't actually beneficial for her. So that she actually realizes that she can trust me. So she realizes that I was what was best for her. And this is what God does with, does with the people of Israel. He says, you want a king? 
Even though it's not good for you, even though it's not what's best for you, I'm going to allow you to have it so that you then will recognize that I was your king. And that this man's flawed, that this man will disappoint you, that this man won't live up to your expectations, so that you then finally realize and recognize that I am what you truly need. That I, God, am what is best for you. And oftentimes in our lives, we ask God for things. God, give me this relationship. God, give me this paycheck. God, open the door for this career. And I'm not saying that those are bad things. But when we put God expectations on good things, they will fail us. And we do this all the time. We put God expectations on good things, thinking that this, if I just had this, it will fulfill me. If I just had this, if I just had him, if I just had her, if I just had that position, it will fulfill me. It will give me identity. And sometimes the Lord will give us those things, even though that's not necessarily his plan for us. Because he wants us to actually recognize that within those things, it can't live up to God-sized expectations. And so the people of Israel, this is what happens. They, they put a God-sized expectations on an earthly man thinking, this then will fulfill us. We're going to look like everyone else. We'll have someone to fight for us. And God says, listen, I don't want you to look like everyone else. And I can fight for you. I can fulfill you. I can meet your needs. I can give you gratification and satisfaction, but you're looking for it in all the wrong places. And sometimes we do this. We put God expectations on good things, but if you put a God expectation on a good thing, it will fail you. We put God expectations on marriage. Man, if only I was married, I'd feel fulfilled, and a part of my heart would finally feel whole. And marriage is a good thing. I'm married and it's wonderful. And my wife is a blessing from the Lord. And marriage is an amazing thing. And you can do life and live life with someone. And it can honor God. And it could be just the most joyous relationship and friendship. It's a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's a great thing. God designed marriage. But marriage, if we put God expectations on marriage, that it will fulfill you and it will complete you, it will make you whole, it will fulfill every desire and meet every single need, that's a God expectation that my spouse can't live up to. And then so marriage then disappoints you. I thought you were going to meet all my needs and meet, fulfill this identity, fulfill this longing. We put God expectations on money. If only I had more money, I'd feel more content. Money is a good thing, but it wasn't meant to carry God expectations. We can even put God expectations on ministry. I so badly want to serve the Lord and honor the Lord. I want to do ministry. I want to serve here. I want to go there, go on this trip. I want to work here. I want to do that. I want to serve the Lord in ministry. Listen, ministry can sometimes, we can sometimes put God expectations on ministry because we think if only I was serving the Lord in this full-time capacity, I would I'd finally feel content and at rest and feel complete and feel at peace and my identity would be, you know, all that it was meant to be. But listen, if we put God expectations on ministry, what happens is we fall more in love with the gifts 
Serving the Lord, that's a gift. But we need to be more in love with the giver. And I'm so guilty of sometimes falling more in love with the gifts that God gives me. When the gifts that God gives me are good, and he wants us to enjoy them, but he doesn't want us to idolize them. And even sometimes that can happen with good things like marriage, money, and ministry. And we put God expectations on those things, thinking if only I had them, I'd finally be complete. And the Israelites said, if only we had a king, then we would be complete. We'd be a real nation. We'd look like everyone else. We'd have someone to fight for us. And God gave it to them, but it wasn't what was best for them. And so, in closing over our Bible study tonight, if you have, you know, sometimes it could be just subconscious. If you have placed things on the throne of your heart and you have, you've made them the king of your life and you have put God expectations on those things, and maybe it's some of the things I've listed like marriage, money, or ministry, relationships, paycheck. I don't know what it might be for you, but we can often put other things on the throne of our heart. Maybe those things are good. Maybe the things are not so good. Maybe the thing is, is a substance or um, just sin, lust. I don't know what it might be, but we have idolized something and we've put it on the throne of our hearts and we've made it the king of our lives. Just want to encourage you through this story I want you tonight to dethrone whatever you have placed as the king of your heart. And maybe you've placed that as the king of your heart because you thought it would fulfill you. Maybe you've placed that thing or that someone, that person on the throne of your heart because you just wanted to fit in. Listen, tonight, you know, learn from the Hebrew people to not put anything on the throne of your heart but to give God his rightful place. God says, listen, I, I want to be your king. I want to be your authority. I want to rule over you. I want to be there for you. I want to help you make decisions. I want to be that person in your life who fulfills you and gratifies you and completes you. And you will attempt to search for completion and meaning and purpose and identity and a thousand other things, but until you make Jesus the king of your heart and you find your identity and your purpose and fulfillment in him, you will be searching for a lifetime and you will never be fulfilled. And so maybe for the first time you're hearing it and you're saying, I, actually, I've never given Jesus that authority in my life. And tonight, I want to make Jesus the king of my life. And I want to I give him control I've tried that. I've tried to seek fulfillment and satisfaction and identity and other things. And I've come up dry and I want to make Jesus the king of my life. If that's you tonight, then make Jesus the king of your heart by just, in a moment we're just going to pray and you just say, I'm done chasing after other things. I turn from my sin and I surrender to Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for me and that he loves me and that he rose again. And so I just give him my life tonight. Maybe you've, you've been coming to church, you're a Christian, you follow Jesus, but you recognize tonight that you have, you've been chasing other things to fit in, and you know that's not what's best for you. And you've idolized other things or other people, 
And you just want to make tonight, you just want to kind of dedicate tonight as the night where you just, you finally just surrender to the Lord and you just put those things to rest and say, Lord, all I want is you. I've made other things king over the past few weeks or the past few months. I want to make you king tonight. Because God is a better authority over our lives than we are. I've tried to do life on my own, make decisions on my own without the Lord's help. It always goes better for me when I give God back control of my life. Because God is a better God over me than I am. We can try to be our own gods, but it never works out. So maybe it's the first time, maybe you just want to dedicate this, this night back to the Lord and say, Lord, I want to make you the king of my heart. Then just do that. Do that tonight because God loves you and he knows what's best for you. So let's bow our heads, let's pray. And for the first group of people, maybe tonight you would admit, you'd say to me, Austin, I've, I've never fully surrendered my life to Jesus. Other things have been king. I've given control to other things or other people. I've been the king of my life. But tonight, I want to make Jesus the king of my life. I want to turn from my sin. And I want to turn to Jesus. I want to accept him. I want to surrender to him. Then would you just whisper in your heart to the Lord, Lord Jesus, I want to give you my life tonight. I want to surrender to you. Forgive me of my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for me and that you rose again. And I receive you tonight. Come into my life. Be the king over my heart tonight. In Jesus' name. For those of you who tonight... You've been chasing after other things. You're a believer. You've been following Jesus, but you just recognize tonight that you've been, you've been obsessing over other things or maybe you've been seeking other things to fulfill you or to give you some kind of satisfaction or to give you meaning or identity. You've kind of just set the Lord aside and, and He hasn't been king. And you just want to, you want to give Him control. And just whisper a prayer in your heart tonight. Just ask Him to be the king over your heart. Just ask Him to forgive you. Just turn to Him. He loves you. He is always here with open arms, willing to receive those who would turn from their ways, turn to Jesus. Lord, that's our prayer tonight. That's my prayer for my own heart. That's our prayer collectively as a group, Lord. We pray that if there's anything in our lives where we have made them king, we have given them control. We have given it control. We have given that person control. We have been chasing other things, trying to seek fulfillment, in other places, other people, other things. Lord, would you just forgive us? We come back to you, Lord, and we say, would you be king? Would you be the king over our hearts? 
We don't want to find fulfillment in your gifts. We want to find fulfillment in you, the giver. Help us to not make good things God things. Whether that's relationships or marriage, money, ministry, those are good things. You've given these things to us. But help us not to treat those things like God things, thinking that they will finally fulfill us or give us meaning and purpose. But help us to seek you, Jesus, the rightful King, knowing that you are the one who gives us meaning. You, Lord, you are the one who gives us purpose. You are the one who should shape us and give us our identity. You are the one who should be the authority in our lives. Not us, not anyone else, any other thing, Lord. We give you the rightful place on the throne of our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. We love you. We turn to you tonight. We commit ourselves to you tonight. Thank you for first loving us. Even while we were still sinners, you loved us and you died for us. We are so thankful for that. We love you, Jesus. Go before us as we go about the rest of our week, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, trusting that you will take care of the rest. Give us wisdom and discernment by your Holy Spirit to live lives that honor you, to make decisions that please you, Lord. We pray all of these things in the matchless Son of your name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Everybody said together, amen.